summer day and we appreciate you being here and so glad that uh, you have joined us uh, if you are visiting with us we are especially glad that you are here and uh, hope we'll call attention to uh, but if you uh, there's uh, other things happening as well uh, they'll get you bulletin if you didn't get one when you came in uh, we do have a couple of mission trips coming up we're selling fish dinners firstly some were picked yesterday and we've got a lot of them out there already shelled and bagged ready to go home and cook so uh, you don't have to do any work except give us $5 a bag. And, there and also, Heart to Home sign-up is today. Uh, it is a great and glorious day because the people of the Lord are together. And we will sing praises to him and we'll hear his word preached and we will be here on this earth as we await our calling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, us, uh, for stooping down, as the psalm writer said, to make us great. Uh, you lift us up from the mire and the clay that we were in. And you set us on firm ground before your throne. And I pray, Father, that what we do today is an honor and glory to you, that we lift our uh, I pray, Father, that we are inspired to live the life that you have called us to live. It's through your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and continue. Blessed be your name. 
special a, a spiritual vision and the Lord takes special things blessings out of our lives and still be able to say look you have let me try to see that with your spiritual eyes your spiritual vision the song we're about to sing kind of says it perfectly open the eyes of my heart so that I can see what you're doing here so that I can understand and have an understanding a spiritual vision about what's going on here and we have to pray that continually or else we get stuck in this, this physical vision that doesn't make any sense. And then it's easy to say, no, I don't miss it all. And we get bitter about it. But we have to continually be saying, look, give me your vision. Open the eyes of my heart so that I can have an understanding of, of what your will is here. Let's sing about it. Oh, my God. 
Good morning, church family. Glad to be a part of this, this service. And I want to read something from, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your love and the love that you showed for us by sending your son to die on the cross for our sins, Father. That's just hard for me to fathom. We know it's true because we read it in God in your word, Father. We pray that you just, uh, the ones that partake of this, would do it in, in a manner that's pleasing to your sight, Father. Through thee, Jesus. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant of my blood do this whenever you drink it and remember in remembrance of me father we thank you so much for this promise that you made to us we thank you for uh, the, the fruit of the vine father it does represent you your son's blood we pray that we do this in remembrance of you father in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We'll read something from 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. Sowing generously. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Father, we're so thankful for all the blessings you do bestow upon us each day, and we thank you for the material blessings as well as the spiritual. Pray that you take what is given today, and it'll be used to glorify your name, Father, throughout the this community in the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Good, good morning, church. Thank you, visitors, for being with us today. I want to remind you that uh, there will be a, uh, some have asked about Sunday nights. You know, we have house churches around, but also at the University Church uh, in Monroe, we'll be having a worship service there tonight, communion time together. And actually, uh, Debbie Colvin is going to be sharing her testimony there tonight. So thank you ahead of time, Debbie, for being willing to do that. Do you respond, brother? I mean, I'll take responses right from the beginning if I need to. About 40 years ago, I repented. <laughs> I've been repenting ever since. I'd like to recognize these Army guys and gals who are visiting with us today. You guys stand. Everybody give them a round of applause for serving our country. Amen. Thank you, thank you. Tonight at 6 o'clock at University, if you want to join us there. Also, we've been in this series, Highlights of the Book of Acts. Uh, when uh, It's called Converge, when Ordinary Meets Extra. And, uh, of course, Al did a great job last week, by the way. Uh, and uh, Trent, the lessons you've been doing has been really well. And so we, we've asked Zach... Dasher to do this lesson today and out of the book of Acts and so he's going to be coming and sharing with us. Zach come on up brother let me have prayer over you and thank you for your willingness. Uh, Zach has been preaching over at the uh, university our, our work over there for a pretty good while now and uh, as well as with uh, Gordon and some of the other guys Ben and uh, that go over there and help make that effort uh, there successful and we're really excited about the work that's going on over there and appreciate your willingness to come across the river and preach here today okay thank let's you. bow father we love you thank you so much for your word that guides us and for your spirit to put it down for the same spirit that dwells in us and so we ask that you bless zach as he shares with us today as he uh, uh breaks open this word and uh, uh brings it to us uh, Father, we're grateful for his faith and his heart and uh, his passion for you. And so please use him today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. So I had the opportunity to speak in front of a larger crowd than this at the uh, Republican Leadership Conference. And the way I got in was they said, look... You're a nobody, Zach, but we know you're related to, to the Robertsons, so if you can get Willie down here, we'll let you speak. I'm not a nobody, but I called Willie up. I said, Willie, um, would you do, this, do me one favor? Would, can you speak down here in New Orleans? I want to be out of town that week, uh, and I can't do it. So I looked down my list of available Robertsons, and the next on the list was Phil. So Dad went down there and talked to Phil. I said, Phil, would you be willing to do this for Zach? And Phil 
Phil's response was, I'll do it, but he needs to ask himself this question. <laughs> Phil, that's a valid question. But you know what, I, my point is, I can't run from who I am. I can't run from, from what we are. So I said, let's do it. Let's go down there. And Phil was supposed to speak 20 minutes, but he did about a 45-minute sermon, and he had them on their feet. I promise you that's never been done before. Um, when I spoke there, I did not get nervous. So when Willie told me, he said, Zach, I've spoken all over the country, and I never get nervous, but somehow when I spoke in front of our, my home congregation, he said, I've never been that nervous in my life. And I'm laughing. I'm like, nervous, you know, come on, Willie. I'm making fun of him, and then I woke up this morning, and my stomach was a knot, so <laughs> I'm a little nervous right now, so be careful uh, when you make fun of somebody. It might come back to, to bite you. But look, I want to talk to you guys today about Acts 17 and, and, and addressing the culture. How do we address the culture? Man's dilemma over the last, uh, well, since, since man began, since man was created, we've had this uh, ego problem, right? Where we want to be God or, or, or we want somebody else to be God, so we, we demand to have these kings and whatnot. Um, you look in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 and you find out this same dilemma was at the very beginning when Satan tempted man, when man's sitting there in front of that tree and he's contemplating whether or not he's going to eat this forbidden fruit, what was the lie that the devil told him? He said, if you eat this fruit, you'll be what? You'll be like God. If you eat this fruit, you'll be able to be your own God. And so throughout history, if, you, if you're a student of history, what you'll notice is, is that it's littered with, with people trying or attempting to be the creator when that's really pretty stupid, right? We can't create things ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing, like God our Father does. And the history of the Israelites is no different. In fact, the Israelites, after all that had been done, if you think about their exodus from, from Egypt, remember what happened? They had happy meals coming from the sky. I mean, God's providing food for them. Bread's falling out of the sky. He's parting the Red Seas. He's in all these miracles. He's delivered for them over and over and over again. Yet they still said, we need a king. We don't, God, you're not enough to take care of us. We need to take this into our own hands. We demand a king. And after a while... God gave them what they wanted, a man by the name of Saul. And Saul was a pretty good guy for the first two years, but after about two years, he spent 40 years spiraling into this, the worst tyrant that you can imagine, up until a point where God raised up another leader, whom you are probably all aware of, David, to take the throne. And when David was ready to take the throne... All the men from the 12 tribes of Israel, they came to surround him to support his kingship. And, and, and each tribe brought like a little something different to the table. Most of them were warriors or commanders or army chiefs. But there was this one tribe, this one group of people that came that offered something a little different. And that is the man, and the, or rather the men of Issachar. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, it says, From Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. So these men came in to aid King David in his bid for, for the throne, and these were men who understood what was going on in the times around us. Folks, I'm going to tell you right now, there is a vacuum in this nation of men and women who understand the times. And we've got to step up to the plate. We've got to start understanding what's going on in the culture, and we need to be able to properly address it. Which moves us right into the, the book of Acts, because we find the man of the book of Acts who did understand the times 
of the day in which he lived, and that's a man by the name of Paul. I would argue that Paul is probably one of the most influential evangelists in history. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. Um, his, his writings were just, I mean, inspired by God, obviously, and had a tr tremendous impact on the church. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Acts chapter 17. Turn to Acts 17. We're going to spend the majority of our time in Acts 17 this morning. Um, when they asked me to, to teach on Acts 17, I, I mean, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Some of you guys know that my wheelhouse is philosophy, apologetics. I love it. It speaks to me, and I'll share why in a little, in a little bit. And Acts 17 is one of the best chapters in the Bible. We're going to bleed into chapter 18 a little bit of understanding why apologetics is so important or why, and, and, and apologetics is just giving, giving def, the defense for why we believe what we believe. So look, Paul's in, about to go to four different places here. He's going to go to Thessalonica first, and after that he's going to go to Berea. After Berea, he's going to Athens, and then after Af Athens, he's going to Corinth. So what I want to do is I want to just read a little bit from each place that he went, and I want you guys to, 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 to read with me, and, and we're going to find a common thread on how Paul addresses the culture, because Paul is a man who understood the times. Acts 17, 2, it says, As was his custom, well, we can stop right there. When, I, when we say, as was his custom, what does that mean? This is how he did things. This is how Paul did things, as was his custom. Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he, what? He reasoned. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. How did he tell him? He reasoned with him. So then we skip down to Berea. When he goes to Berea, it says, As soon as it was night, in verse 10, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And on arriving there, where do they go? Into the Jewish synagogue, just like was his custom and what he did in Thessalonica, the same thing in Berea. Now the Bereans, they were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. That's another way of saying that they were truth seekers. The folks, the Thessalonians, they weren't. They rejected what Paul said. They were angry. But the Bereans were truth seekers. They were a more noble character, for they received the message. What message? The one that Paul gave the, the church in Thessalonica, or, or the synagogue. He reasoned with them. He reasoned with the Bereans, but they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as also did a prominent number of Greek women and many Greek uh, uh, men. Same story. He moves to Athens. While Paul, verse 16, was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the, the, see the city was full of idols. So he, what? He reasoned. He reasoned in the synagogue, which, by the way, we know was his custom, with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So he's in with the philosophers now. He's debating with the philosophers in Athens. And some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They didn't make sense to him at first. Then they took him and brought him into a meeting of Arapagus and said to him, may we know what this new teaching is you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we like to know what they mean. 
And all the Athenians and the uh, the foreigners who lived there spent time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It sounds a little bit like America, right? They're discussing all these new age ideas and these different philosophies. And Paul basically comes on the scene and says, all right, I'm going to use my ability to reason. And I'm going to show you about this God whom you're looking for. And you all have these different philosophies, but let's just continue in the vein of reason and see where we end up at. And by the way, folks, if you continue in the vein of reason, you will always always end up with the God who is there, the Judeo-Christian God that is presented in this word right here that I hold before you today. And then when he went to Corinth in Acts 18, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, and verse 4 says, Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. This is the biblical model of how we should be addressing the culture. We should be making reasonable, rational, and logical arguments with, with, the, with the world. That's what Paul did. But we live in a postmodern age. So let me tell you what the postmodern church's approach has been to changing culture. You don't need to understand what I mean by postmodern. All you need to know when I say the word postmodern is there's one characteristic of it I want you to understand that it's overwhelmingly relativistic, which means that it's not really true. It's true for you, but maybe not true for me. Um, an example of this would be how many of you ever heard someone say something like, Well, for me, Christianity is true, but for you, or, or for you, that may be true, but for me, you know, my, my, my personal belief, we use words like personal or private, or, you know, it's like, it's like a, our little wheelhouse, our little box, it's our little private little faith. We keep it in our pocket. Faith's important to me, guys. Faith is so important to me. It's a big part of my life. Oh, well, what are you saying there? You're saying that it's, it's a little compartment where you put God, and it's only true for you. It's not really true for everybody else. We have placed faith into the private sphere, not to be used in the public sphere. Well, this is actually an abandonment of reason. If you think faith is just a private truth, just for you, it's not true for everybody, there's no power in that. I don't care what you believe is true for you. I don't care if your favorite pizza is Pizza Hut or Johnny's Pizza. Around here, if it's Pizza Hut, there's, you've got an issue, but I mean... <laughs> but I'm not going to care. You're not, if you tell me, for me, I like, I'm, I'm somebody like, well, yeah, I disagree with it. But it's not, I mean, look, it's your opinion, right? That's your thing. i got my thing. I'm not going to judge you for that. Christianity is different, though. That's not what the Bible teaches about faith. Faith is not some true for me, true for you thing. It's either true for everybody or it's untrue for everybody. Jesus doesn't leave that option open to us, does he? He doesn't say, well, well, if you believe in me, that's fine, but you can also believe over here. Listen, we're all on the same road, guys. As long as you just are sincere, that's all that matters, and we're all going to get to the same place. He didn't say that. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. And what? Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There is no middle of the road here. As C.S. Lewis says, he was either a liar or a lunatic, or he was who he said he was. Those are three options. The church has abandoned that, by and large. So about eight years ago, I found myself with a secret struggle I want to tell you about this morning. I was at this church. I'm teaching Sunday school right over there. This was before the, we did the whole kids wing. I'm involved in Sunday school. I'm hosting a house church. I'm actively involved in the ministry here at this church. I mean, I'm an active member, guys. I'm sharing the gospel with people. But secretly, inside, you know what I was thinking? 
how can this really be true? I mean, I'm, I'm having these thoughts. How can this really be true? I mean, the Bible teaches, that the Bible teaches the earth is like seven to 10,000 years old, and, 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 but yet science has proven that it's like 4.5 billion, or, or what about the, the Noah's flood? I mean, did it really cover the whole earth? There's no evidence for that. And, and, and I mean, how do I know that the, that the scriptures are reliable? I mean, how do I know some, some charismatic cult leader didn't just make this up and create this thing and then just over time turn into this big myth and, and, and on and on and on? These are the questions that I would have. I found myself in a dark place. But look, this wasn't the first time I'd had these thoughts. I had these thoughts ever since I was able to, to think for myself. But as a young child when, or, or, or a young teenager, when I would present these to, to the various youth ministers that I had growing up or, or to the Sunday school teacher, you know what their response would be every time I would say, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know if this, how do we know this is true? How do I know it to be real? You know what their response always was? Well, that's where faith comes in. <sighs> that's a horrible answer. That's where faith comes in? What are they saying there? What they're saying is, is when all the evidence suggests the opposite, when you have no reason to believe this to be true, and you believe it anyways, that's faith. And that's to be commended. Folks, number one, it's not biblical. Read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And number two, that's not faith. That is stupidity. I'm not going to believe something that's not true. That's stupid. Why would I do that? But see, I was being sown this lie because the church made a deal with the culture many years ago that we're going we're gonna to keep faith in the private sphere. It's just true for me. It's not true for everybody. And when we get in here, let me tell you something. Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm telling you. We get out in the workplace now. Jesus is, Jesus is Lord. We're not going to say it, are we? You get in politics. Oh, don't talk about Jesus in politics. Entertainment. I know, actually know a guy, actually a whole family that brought Jesus into entertainment. <laughs> Phil, have they come after you? Don't bring it into the, do not bring faith into the public sphere. It's a private deal. You do it in your churches, we won't mess with you, which now they're actually messing with us in our own churches. See, they lied to us. They said, we'll make a deal. You, you got the churches, we got the public realm, and we'll just leave each other alone. That went on for a while. Now they're coming into the churches. That's hate speech. You can't say that. That's hate speech. Folks, we live in dark times. So I look at this and I think, how did it happen? And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, this doesn't sustain me. Now, I was able to kind of hold it off for a few years because, you know, I actually like the idea of that's where faith comes in because I didn't want to use my intellect to, to find God because if I, if I use my brain... If I use my ability to reason, you know what I was afraid would happen? I might find out he's not real. And then guess what? I have no hope of life after earth, life after death. I didn't like what I might find out, so I was good to make that deal, and I played along with the game, and also I could have all these emotional experiences growing up that kind of kept me going along. But look, like with any relationship, eventually you're going to hit a time where the emotional high is gone, right? Or if temporarily you're not feeling it. I've been married for 13 years. Now, I'm, this probably, y'all have never experienced this, but I've actually had times in my marriage where I wasn't feeling it. Let me tell you something. If you want your marriage to last, it better be built on something more than that emotional high you get when you're first dating. Amen? 
And your relationship with the Almighty God is no different. So I find myself 2.30 in the morning when the highs are gone. I'm 28 years old. I wake up. At, I didn't wake up. I got out of bed at 2.30, and I'm just, I'm telling you, when I say depressed, guys, you have no idea. Well, you do. If you, if you, there's a lot of you out there that have been this way. I'm in despair. I walk, I get out of bed. I look at my, my, my lovely wife, who is just really one of the most amazing women I've ever known. And those of you who know Jill will agree with that. Except for your own wives, of course. But other than your own wives. I go in, I look at my son, my baby boy, Max, was just born. I look at him in the crib, and I'm just, he's just beautiful. My two-year-old daughter, Layla Beth, I got a new job, a good job, and a new house. Life is good, and yet I'm so overwhelmed with sorrow, and I can't understand why. So I go into my office, I get this piece of paper out, and I start writing a prayer down. I've only done that once in my life. I write this prayer down, which basically, it's short, sweet, and to the point, but it says, God, if you are there, which I doubt, I'm being honest, he's God, he knows what I'm thinking, right? Let's be honest with him. God, if you're there, which I doubt, and if you answer prayers, which I also doubt, by the way, I didn't have a prayer life up until this point. You know why? I was kind of like... Thomas Jefferson, I was a deist. I was like, if there is a God, he don't care about me. He ain't, he ain't involved. If you are there and you answer prayers, which I doubt, I need to know because I am drowning here. I'm staring face to face with reality, and I'm done pretending. This whole truth for me, truth for you, I'm done with that. I'm ready to pursue it. I've got up enough courage now. I'm ready to use my intellect to see if this whole thing about God is real. Now look. I put that letter away. I found it five years later. I'll spare you the details, and it's not the scope of this sermon to give you Christian evidences, but I'm 100% sure that our God is alive. I know it to be sure and I don't have time to tell you the abundance the, uh, through God's Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit that has poured into my mind. My mind has been renewed and transformed by the power of God. I know it to be true now. I really do. And I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, look, I'm so great. I've figured it out. And I'm, I'm 100% sure. No, it's not that. But I'm telling you, we can know this to be real. We can know this to be true. When Francis Schaeffer addressed the Missouri Senate Lutheran Church, he told us exactly how we got here. He said about 300 years ago, there was a major shift in these German universities and how they did science. Now, up until this point in history, the way science was operated, it was they looked at this cause and effect world. They called it the uniformity of natural causes. So imagine, you know that, you know that scene where you got the, um, the dominoes are all set up and you hit one and they all fall down? You know what I'm talking about? Y'all seen them do that, right? So that, that, that's like their experiment. So that, that, that represents the universe. And the scientists would come in, and they, would, and they knew that somebody set all these dominoes up, and this was some, something somebody did. And what they wanted to see is they want to examine the mind of whatever being set these dominoes up. So they would go in, and they would look at the last domino that had fallen, and they would use their scientific method, and they would say, now, how did this fall? And they would do, they would do all their research, and they'd say, oh, there's actually another domino lying on top of it. So what must have happened is, this one must have fallen and hit this one, and that's why it's laying there. But as soon as you figure that out, guess what? Now you got another one. Well, what caused this one to fall? So they start to do their examinations, and they, and they find out, oh, that one hit, there's one laying on this one. And they go back, back, and it's this continual search into this cause and effect realm. But the system is open. There's somebody who set these dominoes up, they said. 
So, so science, they believed in what's called the uniformity of natural causes, but it was an open system where God could get in and he could do stuff and he could get out. It was God's world. He could get in and do whatever he wanted to do. But the German scientists said, hold on, boys. We like where you're going. We like the cause and effect thing because we can't do science without it. But the whole business about the system being open, nah, we ain't going that route. Our system, we're going to draw a circle around our little set of dominoes, and there ain't, there's nothing getting in, and there's nothing getting out. All that exists is the cause and effect world. There is no God. All that exists is nature, the natural world. So when you hear the term naturalism, what we mean is all that exists is what's natural, physics, atomic material, matter, if you will. So the philosophers... Oh, by the way, consequently, after the scientists discovered this, every single department in the German universities followed suit, including the departments of theology. How do you have theology without God? Let me tell you something. That was one of, that happened in this in this world. It's one of the been the big one of the, been one of the biggest tragedies to human freedom. So the philosophers got together namely four of them I'll talk about today real briefly, a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who they say started the French Revolution, Frederick Hegel, who was the, uh, the main influencer of a man named Karl Marx. You may have heard of him. Karl Marx, the father of communism, responsible for 100 million murders. Immanuel Kant and Søren Kierkegaard. And they examined this new system, and they made an unbelievable discovery. They said, hold on, Mr. Scientist... We got a problem here because, you see, if you're right and all that exists is the natural world, then that means all that exists is matter, then we don't matter. If all that exists is atomic material, humanity does not matter. And furthermore, we have no free will. You say, Zach, I don't understand what you're saying there. Hold on. had a conversation. Let me drink the rest of this because it's going to be a prop. had a conversation with a guy from a radio show and I gave him the same spill, national broadcaster radio show. He's a producer of it. And so I'm giving him my spill. And I'm talking about the origins of human freedom. And I said, you can't make the case for freedom without beginning with God. How so? Because if God's not there then all that exists is matter, and we don't matter. He says, why? Why why would you say that? So I had some water like this, and I'd finished drinking it, and I just just talking to him like this, and there was a trash can right there. I just tossed it in the trash. I said, do you have a problem with that? I think he's thinking I'm going like the environmentalist route. You know, he's like, no, man, no. I got a problem. What are you talking about? I got a problem with that. I said, yeah, I just threw that. I mean, you see what I just did? Do you have a problem with that? He's like, what? No, I ain't got a problem with that. You threw it in the trash. I said, why don't you have a problem with that? He says, trash. I said, now let me ask you a question. What if you had your kid here, and I took your kid, and I crumbled him up into a ball, and I just started shoving him in the trash can? Would you have a problem with that? And he's like, at this point, he's looking at me like, this dude's a little weird. I, and, I, and look, I'll go to the extreme. If I, I'll go as far as I have to go with you to prove this point. We can get, we can get as sick-minded as you want to get. But he stopped there. He said, yeah, I'd have a problem with that. 
I said, why? He said, what do you mean, why? I said, why would you have a problem with me tossing your son in the trash can, but you had no problem with me throwing that bottle in the trash can? He said, because that's my son. I said, if there's no God, what's the difference? That's atomic material. I'm atomic material. It's the same stuff. It's just arranged differently. But we're all the same. Everything's atomic material. If there's no God, there's nothing to give your life any intrinsic value at all whatsoever. Are y'all with me on this? I want y'all, everybody look at the person next to you real quick. Just look at somebody next to you, even if you don't know them. Now, as you're looking at the person next to you, keep looking, keep looking. As you're looking at the person, I know it's kind of awkward. I know this is awkward, but as you're looking at them, let me ask you this question. Is there anything in you that says, yeah, you're about as valuable as a, as a bottle of water? Or is there something in you that knows? Now, some of you are like mad at your wife right now. You're like, yeah. I'm not, don't do that. Come on, let's be honest for a second here. Is there, is there anything in you that says that? Or is there this something in you, and you don't even know where it comes from, but you're looking at that person, and you're saying, you matter infinitely more than trash. You're worth way more than a rotten banana peel or a torn up piece of paper. You've got so much more value than that. You know it, don't you? You know how you know that? Romans chapter 2, God wrote the law in your heart. You know that humanity is intrinsically valuable. So, these philosophers got together and they said, if we're going to stay in the vein of reason, if we're going to remain rational... If God's not there, we've got two options, if we're going to be logical about it. On this end, door number one, we don't matter. And the term for that in philosophy is called nihilism. You ever heard of Friedrich Nietzsche? See, Nietzsche came very, very close to this. He came very, very close to just saying, we don't matter, there's no point to life, no purpose, no value, no meaning, nothing matters. That's door number one. Door number two is you can look at your son in his crib or you can look at your wife or you can look at a complete stranger and you can know when I'm looking in the eyes of my children, let me tell you something, I know that they matter. So Zach, how do you know that? How do I know that? What are you talking about? I know it. I know it inherently, a priori. It's a properly basic belief to know that man matters. So option one, nobody matters, nothing matters. It's all just, it doesn't matter. Or, I admit that God's there. Two options. To stay in the vein of reason. Right? Either we say, we don't matter, or we say, God is real. There's your two options right there. So what do you think these brilliant intellectuals chose? Which one? Door number one or door number two? Y'all think they chose number one? No. Surprisingly, they didn't. But they did not choose door number two either. They chose a third door. They said, if we have to remain in the vein of reason, and we're either going to have to choose nihilism, nobody matters, or God is real, we don't like either one of those options. You know what? Forget reason. We will abandon reason. And they did this. It's, it's historically accurate. What I'm telling you has been so well vetted, I could speak for six days on this topic and prove to you that the philosophers, the intellectuals, and soon to follow are most political systems in the world said man they reject reason and they developed this two-story house that Francis Schaeffer talks about and in our upper story we put things that don't aren't really true 
We don't use reason up here in the top story. Things like faith, because faith is private. The upper story is our private story. The lower story is our public story. When I say public, I mean, this is, that's true for everybody. What's true for everybody? Scientific facts. Mathematical equations. Two plus two is, is four, and that's true for every one of us. doesn't matter how you perceive it. Stoplights are true for everybody. If you run one, you can say, well, I feel like it lights green. You go home today, and you pretend like every light for you is green that's red, and see what happens. One of two things. You get in a wreck, or you get a ticket. See, it's binding on all of us. It's a public truth. But now when we talk about meaning and family values, we use these terms. Oh, I hate those terms. Because you know what we're saying? This is true for me. It's my privately held belief. It's not true for everybody. I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to judge. You mean I can't make any statement that this is actually true without being called judgmental? Well, you're going to be called judgmental. It's not judgmental. We could be wrong. Let's bring it into the arena of ideas and discuss it. But they developed this two-story system so that they could function because nobody can live like God's not there. And nobody can live without reason because you can't make scientific discoveries with it. You can't live your life that way. When you go to your house and your kid's sick, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, he's got 102 fever, and I go into the medicine cabinet and I pull it open and there's Tylenol, there's um, ibuprofen, which is I like the best, and then there's rat poisoning. I use reason when I determine which bottle to give him. I don't say, well, he says rat poison, but for me, you know, who, who am I to judge? I mean, who am I to judge? I, I don't want to judge because that's, you know, that's, oh, I mean, I hate those judgmental Christians. Rat poison. Joe, give him, the rat, give him this. this I, think it's, I feel like it's Tylenol. No, 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 you don't live that way. And the philosophers knew this. That's why they, developed, that's why they abandoned reason in 50% of our life when it came to the, matter, the things that really matter. So here we are with these two options. And let me tell you what's happened. Because we have abandoned reason when it comes to determining the value of man, we have an, what's called an incorrect anthropology. Man and his value, because we can't really talk about why he's valuable anymore, and the church has basically said, yeah, we'll take your deal culture, we'll keep it in the private sphere, we won't tell you really why man matters. Here's why you matter. Because of what Paul said in Acts chapter 17. We've got to be like these men of Issachar who understand the times. We need to be more like Paul who reasoned with the Thessalonians. He reasoned with the Bereans. He reasoned with the Athenians. And he reasoned with the Corinthians. He said, what did he reason? The same exact thing. That God said in Genesis 1, 26, 1, 27. Paul said it this way. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples built by man's hands. Look, we want to keep God in the building. Paul shut that whole thing down. He doesn't live in here. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives life and breath and all things. He made us from one blood, every nation of men to dwell upon the face of the earth, and he actually determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. He's talking about us here. So that we should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being, as some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. 
We're his kids. Paul was reasoning that man, as our own creator said, is made in the image of the Almighty God. That's who you are. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So he created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And when societies get this wrong, do you know what happens? Millions of people die. Well, Zach, you can't talk about God in the public square. It's not politically correct. I mean, come on. We just, can't we just keep it to ourselves? million babies every year are murdered in America. And we say, does it have consequences? Oh, it has consequences. It has economic consequences, and it has social consequences. When we view man for less than what he is, you know what you're going to do? You're going to treat man as less than what he is. We must begin all freedom with the correct anthropology that man is made in the image of God. So if you're here this morning, look, this bleeds into every area of life. When I was in the depths of sin in my life, you know what, you know what it was that kept me there? I didn't understand that I was made in the image of God. I thought God was lying to me. See, I thought God was holding out. I didn't think that he had my best interest at heart. So, so, you know, I didn't really trust him. So what I became was an animal. Anybody in here live like an animal before? Just curious. I mean, I know a church like this. We got some animals in here. When you forget that you're made in the image of God, and trust me, it's easy to forget because you have an entire culture that's pretty much atheistic, and we're operating on this atheistic worldview that says God's dead, and he is not involved in your life, and there is no such thing. That's only your privately held belief. There ain't no power in that. None. We have the truth on our side. It's time for the church to wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. I'm going to make an intellectual, a reasonable case of the culture. You say, but I don't know how to do that, Zach. You've got to start somewhere. I didn't know how to do it eight years ago. It starts with courage. Let's have the courage to seek the truth. If God is real, should we be afraid of seeking the truth? No. We have the truth on our side. And if you're here this morning, and maybe you're in that place in your life where you're living like an animal, maybe, you've, maybe you're like, you know what? I've, I've never considered the implications. Maybe I've been riding the bench over here at this church for 40 years, and I haven't been getting involved in addressing the culture. I come in here to soak it in, Zach. I'm here. I complain about the about it being too hot, which it is hot in here right now. Maybe it's because I'm preaching. I complain about oh, we need more of the old songs, more of the new songs. Oh, we need to do the no, no. Consumerism doesn't work in Christianity. Be part of the solution. Understand that we're fighting a cultural war here, and if we don't wake up, we're going to lose it. It's always been the church who has been there when movements of freedom have occurred. And if you're here this morning and that convicts you, I'd invite you to come now as we stand and sing.
Ah! 